live from the WLI WFM studio in Southampton, New York, on Friday, September 15th, 2023. I'm Gianna Volpe. New York City has dropped its litigation against Suffolk County, Riverhead Town, and other jurisdictions statewide for blocking the relocation of homeless foreign migrants from the city to those places, according to court filings. Matthew Chase and Tara Smith reporting on Newsday.com that the litigation, which targeted 31 municipalities statewide with similar anti-relocation policies, accused the jurisdictions of seeking to wall off their borders to keep out any of the tens of thousands of migrants who arrived in the city from abroad. To ease the city's burden, the Adams administration has been trying mostly unsuccessfully to relocate some of the migrants throughout the state. The case against the town of Riverhead was dropped Wednesday. The one against Suffolk was dropped August 30th, according to the filings. Jonah Allen, the spokesperson for New York City Mayor Eric Adams, said yesterday that the city dropped the litigation because of a judge's adverse ruling last month that the city would need to fight each municipality's ban in each uh, respective county rather than all in Manhattan in prepared remarks delivered Thursday. Riverhead Town Supervisor Yvette Aguiar said of migrant leave relocations, quote, not only would this type of emergency housing be in violation of our codes, but in addition would limit hotel space during our busiest tourist season, thereby threatening the existing local jobs and the economy our community depends on. And quote, New York City, which is under a unique in the nation and decades old mandate to provide room and board to whoever is in need, has promised to pay for the migrants' living expenses when relocated. But the Adams administration has declined to say how long those payments would last and the breadth of the subsidies. In other news, Southampton Town Supervisor Jay Schneiderman declared a state of emergency yesterday as town and county crews worked to prevent a breach of Atlantic Ocean water into Shinnecock Bay, just west of Tiana Beach in Hampton Bay. As Ryan Murphy, Southampton's Public Safety Emergency Management Administrator, described the incident as a washover caused by Hurricane Lee. Officials closed a section of Dune Road that runs parallel to the ocean. The state of emergency, which covers areas of East Quag, Hampton Bays, and any other barrier island locations, is scheduled to remain in effect through Monday. On Thursday afternoon, the town of East Hampton closed all of its beaches and began preparing to protect coastal neighborhoods from flooding as large waves from approaching Hurricane Lee are causing hazardous conditions along their coastline. Quote, we're continuing to monitor impacts and are planning to build a sand berm at the end of South Edison Street in Montauk, which is prone to overwash and flooding, East Hampton Town Supervisor Peter Van Skoyek said yesterday. While the storm itself is not expected to impact the East End, Swells from the storm are forecast to exceed 10 feet in height on the South Fork and could push higher than normal tides, posing a threat of overwashing ocean beaches and low-lying coastal areas. Also in Southampton news, U.S. Representative Nick LaLota reached out this week to set the record straight on his interactions with the town of Southampton over a hotly contested plan that could see a public-private transformation of vacant U.S. Coast Guard homes in West Hampton into affordable housing. Tom Gagola reporting on 27East.com that in a letter to the Southampton Town Council dated August 23rd, Lelota said he was writing to support a solution that benefits residents near the property and town of Southampton residents as a whole. In his letter, Congressman Lelota said he only became aware of the town's interest in acquiring the 14-acre lot and the dozens of housing Units on it through media reports and residents, the latter of whom he says have contacted him in droves to oppose the town's plan to acquire the land in partnership with a private developer and with buy-in from the state, the county, and the federal government. Lalota, a Republican from Amityville, who defeated Democratic County Legislator Bridget Fleming to earn the congressional seat vacated by Republican Lee Zeldin in 2022, said that he and his staff had been in contact with the General Services Administration and residents of the Wahampton 
West Estates Neighborhood and their homeowners association to hear their vision for the property. He noted there is far from a consensus vision on what should happen with the former Coast Guard housing. Quote, I have recently heard from dozens of residents who do not want the town to purchase the property, Lolota said. Last week, the General Services Administration announced it was indefinitely suspending the planned auction of the town of the land while the town of Southampton tried to piece together a $15 million package to purchase it. And finally, job seekers on Long Island and throughout the state will be able to see how much an employer is willing to pay when looking at job postings under a state law that goes into effect Sunday. Victor Ocasio reporting on Newsday.com that the pay transparency law signed by Governor Kathy Hochul last year requires employees, uh, employers with four or more employees to disclose Good faith salary ranges and job postings, both externally as well as internally. The intent behind the law is to help uh, address pay inequity issues and discriminatory wage setting and hiring practices, according to the state. New York City has had a pay transparency law in place since November. The law presents both potential benefits and real challenges for employers Employment law attorneys uh, point out one immediate challenge is that the state has yet to release any detailed guidance or best practices for how employers should comply with the law. That from Timothy Dominic, a principal at the Long Island law firm Jackson Lewis, who spoke yesterday with the Long Island chapter of Society for Human Resource Management. Reading the weather in Sag Harbor in honor of Kelly McMasters joining us for the Friday morning tea at the bottom of the hour. Kelly will be doing an event with Ada Calhoun at the church tonight. Looking like a partly sunny Friday in Sag Harbor with a high near 74 degrees. North wind around 16 miles per hour. Tonight mostly cloudy with a low around 63 degrees. North wind around 17 miles per hour. Right now feeling a little chilly uh, compared with the heat we've been having. It's 60 degrees in Sag Harbor, I'm Gianna Volpe. We've got the Choice Edition prepared for you this morning. Um, all wrapped around my choice from Alessandro Giangola. Joining us for the bottom of the next hour, Jack Stauber's Micropop. I almost never play, uh, but we've got him up after uh, before the Blow Monkeys and Jonathan Brooke, followed by the OJs. But first, Far Caspian. From the last remaining light record of the current year, 2023. Ah, and a correction. I actually have come to really enjoy doing corrections. It's a hallmark of a good journalist and certainly a celebration of being a human being. I was interviewing uh, Southampton Post Office employee Frank Cazola uh, earlier in the week, and I was talking about my grandfather's... Um, uh, employment history with the post office. And I said that uh, the post office had given him a grandfather clock. Um, He did, in fact, receive um, an honor from the military, all all branches of the military, the highest uh, given to a civilian for actually helping improve the mail systems uh, to get service people their mail quicker. Um, but the the grandfather clock and the photos I saw, or, well, let's start with the grandfather clock that they have. The grandfather clock that they, that my, uh, my gra- that's in my grandmother and, and grandfather's house was actually something he, it, the, I think it was like the first thing he purchased. It was to celebrate uh, extra money. From doing the mail at, at Kennedy Airport, um, it was like foreign and bulk. There was a whole. My mom was just telling me. Anyway, uh, how did how did uh, they want to celebrate this extra money that was coming in? And my grandmother said, "I, I want a, a grandfather clock." So that's how they got theirs. The photos I saw of my grandfather um, standing next to a clock uh, in a, a ceremonial setting was actually down in Florida, and he was presenting this grandfather clock to Hubert Humphrey on behalf of the International uh, Longshoremen's Association, the ILA, uh, which I know uh, he was in, as well as 
um, the late Mr. Scotto from right here in Southampton. Anyway, I wanted to make sure that I corrected myself because I was, you know, I was asking my mother, was everything I said accurate? She said, yes, my grandmother had been napping. I went over all the information that I said with her. She corrected it all, and I said, great, I'm going to correct the record right when I get on air. I love it. I'm Gianna Volpe. This is for Caspian. You, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. I'm Gianna Volpe, and uh, you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. News you can trust, music you love on 88.3 FM throughout eastern Long Island and coastal Connecticut, 96.9 in central and western Suffolk County, streaming online to wherever you may be at WLIW.org slash radio.
say I feel very on brand because I'm wearing an 80s Nickelodeon t-shirt as I play 1989's choice question mark from the Blow Monkeys leading us into the Friday morning tea underwritten by Village Overhead Doors. Uh, grateful to Kelly McMasters uh, for writing the, Le- the Leaving Season, uh, her memoir, as well as for joining us this morning. Good morning, Kelly. Thank you for being with us. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Can we start by talking about where you grew up here on Long Island and and what it was like for you? Absolutely. So I grew up in Shirley. Got it. And that was actually the, um, my first book was called Welcome to Shirley, a memoir from an atomic town. And it was an amazing place to grow up. Uh, It was full of natural beauty and an amazing community of neighbors and it was incredible until I realized that there were some pretty difficult environmental class social issues surrounding us there and um, impacting everybody's lives. And you were a very aware, I know you were a very aware young adult. So can you talk about how it started for you? Do you think it started from you noticing these issues in your own hometown? Uh, Sure. I think um, probably before I even got to Shirley, my upbringing was pretty, uh, uh, we moved around a lot. So I would, I would, my dad was a golf pro and a ski instructor. And so every six months, pretty much, he would, his job would end and we'd have to find a new one. So we'd move around quite a bit, which was fun for a kid, right? But then after my sort of fourth preschool, uh, my mom said, I think we need to uh, figure out a way to stay somewhere. Um, But what was really fun 
And now looking back at um, a lot of my work has to do with class and um, and the environment and even the leaving season has these themes running through it and being an insider or an outsider. And I think being a kid growing up on a place like a golf course where, you know, the sand traps were my sort of, um, you know, where I played uh, and we sort I sort of felt like the whole golf course was my lawn, but it really was not right. We were in the working class part of that. And so having that dual reality really, I think, set me up for a life as a writer who's always looking at inside and outside and who's on what side. So we're, we're going to talk about that in a moment. That's going to be my next question. But but first, I just want to talk about uh, what you did back then. You went off to make it in the big city. And, <laughs> and I want to talk about how much your rent was uh, just to make uh, some of the younger folks out there probably insanely jealous when we talk about why a $25,000 salary seemed like a payload for you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes, I did that math and was so excited. That was how much I um, that how much my salary was for my first job as a legal assistant, and I my rent I was sharing an apartment in Brooklyn with two other friends, and so we were splitting the rent, and my portion was I think a thousand bucks, and so I subtracted um, you know twelve thousand from twenty five thousand, uh, and couldn't believe even after taxes that I would still have thousands of dollars to do whatever I wanted with. Now, I had, you know, worked since I was 14, so I, this was not just pie in the sky, it's just I had never had that much money before, right. and I really uh, thought that that everything was possible. And because you were putting in, so you were putting in like 90-hour work weeks, you had so <laughs> little time to spend that money, so it was piling it up. So, so let's get back to that, uh, a major ethical decision, one of, if maybe not the first of your career, uh, to represent banks in a case brought by Jewish people seeking uh, cash and valuables secreted away in where, Switzerland? Yes, that's by, exactly right. By Nazis during the Second World War. Uh, do you want to just mm -hmm. touch on uh, making that choice and, uh, you know, uh, the fact that you sort of, it was like from, what do they say, from the the boat to the frying pan uh, with, the, with the next uh, chance you had to travel in, in that job. Right. I think it's out of the pan into the fire. Is oh, that what you're thinking? I don't know. But it's <laughs> the same like idea. That, it is, yes. yes. Um, and, and you're right. So I had spent my, uh, my college time focused on historical memory, specifically around the Holocaust. I studied in Germany. I knew the language. And so... I was really excited when I was given the opportunity in that first year of working as a legal assistant to participate and go to Germany uh, with this case. Now, I was 99% in until I realized that we were on the side of the banks who did not want to give back the money and valuables and art uh, that the Nazis had stolen during World War II. And so... I had to really make a decision about do I, you know, some of my other friends who worked there were like, does it really matter which side you're representing? You're going to get to travel. It's cool. You're going to make more money. You're going to live in Germany for a few months. This is an incredible opportunity. Uh, but I just couldn't see how I could then still go to sleep each night, uh, knowing that that's what I was participating in. And then the case in Japan, which, is that where you got to go uh, some yes. time later? Yes, that's right. So that one, similarly, um, I didn't really understand the intricacies of project finance at the time. And, uh, and I will say, I think a lot of these decisions are based on growing up in Shirley, where, you know, it's pretty blue collar. And I didn't really know any lawyers or anyone who even wore a suit to work. So I really prided myself on feeling like wearing pantyhose and a suit to work each day was going to save me, was going to make sure that the rest of my life would be in order right. and would protect me. And so I didn't realize that that um, is just a false 
a falsehood. And so once again, I was, I did actually get to go to Japan and work from there. And uh, only once we were there, did I understand that again, we were representing the banks that were uh, putting together this, this dam project that was destroying people's lives in the Philippines. And it was, it was very hard to feel like I kept winding up on the wrong side of things. No, no, a very natural segue uh, when we talk about a, a suit, a business suit as not being a suit of armor. Now, I understand 9-11 is a topic in your memoir, but it 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 is also very obviously something that stands to bring up a lot for you. So I want to mm. make sure you're comfortable revisiting it with us now, or if you'd rather, folks can simply read the book to garner your account. Uh, do you feel okay uh, going back to that day with us now? Oh, thank you so much for asking me that, Gianna. I appreciate it. And yeah, it's been a really difficult uh, few weeks surrounding that date. Right. And I thought actually that I <laughs> that I had processed it. Uh, I was I was wrong. That day was a was as tough as it is every year. Um, but I am comfortable talking about it. Yes, thank you. So uh, just a note that with post traumatic stress, uh, anniversaries are a big deal. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about? I mean, uh, how how it manifests for you. Uh, an anniversary of a traumatic event, of course, 9-11 being one that is uh, one that we experience as a nation. Right. I think for me, what has helped each of those mornings since has been finding some spot along water. Um, I'm living in Port Washington now, and Port Washington was hit really hard by that day. And so there are remembrances, um, you know, along the walking path as well as ceremonies. But that morning for the past few years that I've lived here, I've usually found myself by the water and they blow horns um, along the bay um, for time markers from when the planes hit and when the towers fell. And that has been really uh, comforting in in a in a way just like you said to know that other people are remembering too Mm -hmm. and i think the other thing is honestly poetry uh i was so happy by happenstance uh the first thing i read this uh 9-11 morning uh this year was a gorgeous short piece by the poet laura joyce hubbard uh in river teeth's beautiful things newsletter that comes out every Monday and it she was she's a pilot um, she wound up staying home that day but she writes from a pilot's perspective and there was such beauty in what she wrote and I think remembering she remembered a, the particular pilot um, one of the particular pilots who lost his life and and what she did in that piece was remember his life on the ground and he was a gardener and oh. He, it, and just remembering his, uh, I'm going to get teary just thinking about right. it. She has a gorgeous line, just raising three children and holy basil, uh, you know, what he left behind, I think was so important. And I think honoring those things each anniversary is very important and Beautiful. helpful. Beautiful and heartbreaking. Now, the the person who didn't go to work, that's a, that's a common trope mm. uh, we hear and we hear folks talk about in regard to that day you were not one of those people uh, right <laughs> you you went to work early that morning if you don't if you don't mind uh going there uh, talk about what what that day was like for you 22 years ago sure yeah um it was i was not supposed to be anywhere near the trade center that day uh but i lived on spring street at the time with my roommate and so I was near downtown and it was the primary. And so I also had a doctor's appointment. So I had to get up extra early and I wanted to vote first, which took longer than anticipated. So I wound up being late for my doctor's appointment, which was across from the World Trade. And so from the years that I worked at the law firm that we were just talking about, I did a lot of, you know, running papers back and forth between Battery Park, where the law firm was, and the World Trade. And that building was so confusing. It took me so long to sort of always get my bearings of when you come out of the subway, 
which way to go. So I had a sort of certain certain route that I was um, comfortable with and knew how to how to get out of the subway and up into sort of first floor of the trade center and know which exit would take me to exactly where I needed to be. And so that morning, I got on the subway at Spring Street, went downtown, and when I got out um, at the stop at the trade center, it, it was just people packed and one uh, entrance was closed. They were shuffling us all to the other, but nobody knew what was happening yet. So we were all just grumpy and we were all trying to get funnel out of this one little exit. And what happened, what kept happening was every person who got to that one moment where you're going up the stairs and it's, and you can suddenly see above you would just see this perfect frame of the tower on fire and stop. And so then the person behind them would sort of shove, keep going, keep going. And then, they would stop, uh, and so it was taking a long time, and and that's exactly what happened. Once I got out, I froze and didn't know it was, you know, we just looked straight up, and uh, that was um, really until a police officer was sort of trying to alert everyone that this is an emergency. This is happening right now. You need to get out. He screamed at us to move, to run, to to go. Uh, I was really just frozen. And that's something that kind of haunts me. I, I can only imagine. And, you know, it, it's interesting because the next question I had was about, you know, the romance of the city painter boyfriend. And mm-hmm. this is someone who uh, you trauma bonded with a bit, right? Yeah. You you went to R's apartment um, at, in the wake of uh, calling your boss, which was... Yeah. <laughs> Which was a thing. It's amazing how, you know, in, in the midst of of trauma, uh, these are the things that we do when you're in shock. Mm-hmm. You know, right, exactly. I need to call my boss and say I'm going to be late or, in fact, I may not be able to be there today. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, I think that's... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that's the trick of nonfiction, too, because it was hard to remember that moment that nobody knew right. what was actually happening. Right. Or, or, or what to do. You know, you talked about the, the, mm. ver- the very pregnant woman that you met mm. wanting to save her, but here you are, you're a traumatized uh, person with, with bloody feet uh, yep. trying to figure out like anyone else what the heck to do next. You know, I, I loved uh, when you talk about uh, R the boyfriend, Mm -hmm. the painter, I I appreciated the story from your writer's workshop uh, where, you know, the the person that wanted to write about this, you know, oh, having this love affair with a painter and making love with paint all around on the the floor. (laughs) And they didn't want to do it because it was close to a version of your own life. I loved that because uh, having experienced where it's, the romantic idea can seem so much less so from inside the reality. Now, mm-hmm. you tried, you you wanted so much for uh, R to paint you, as he did many other women, right? And he had been resistant to doing so. I don't paint girlfriends. Uh, you finally uh, get your wish. What were your thoughts when you fr- finally mm-hmm. saw the canvas? Oh my gosh. I think, I think by the time we got to the canvas, it was almost beside the point. Right. uh, Because the experience of sitting was so different than I expected. It was the, the alien, the alienation, because I'm mm. sorry, and I'm sorry to step on you, but I wanted to talk about uh, the way, because I've never seen his art, but Mm -hmm. your description, very adroit and beautiful. And you can tell Mm. you're a journaling, you are a writer. And that you had uh, so much to draw from, including uh, your memory. Uh, but uh, so this is, from my understanding of of uh, the responses, let's say, of of uh, people in the past who had seen the work of themselves, <laughs> portraits, that uh, the there is a divorce between mm-hmm. the reality of the woman and, of, and I'm sure this is quite natural, 
and the representation and not often in a uh, a a a fl- uh, not a flattering but a a warm way i don't know how to to put it but it, you describe the experience of sitting for this and just like we're talking about the difference between the romantic idea and the romantic reality it, it you feel so far from this person that is supposed to be that is your partner exactly exactly and and i think that was part of the conflict for me internally because his work is was and is incredible mm-hmm. uh he's he's a very talented painter his work is cla- like beautiful um however right it is not necessarily flattering to the person or uh, who sat for the painting and sometimes it depends on the person they might feel it is but uh but it isn't that's not the point right it's not it's not meant to be a flattering portrait but the paint itself is the point right and i even understanding that i still thought i hoped i wanted to see how he saw me and i wanted to see how he saw us in that experience of that intimacy of being looked at by someone who loved you Right. For so long and so deeply, because it's not something that we normally do, even in a normal love relationship. Yes, you might look at your partner and gaze into their eyes deeply for a minute or two. After that, it gets a little weird, right? So you're not going to stare at them much longer than that. Um, and But there is something really vulnerable about both allowing someone to look at you and looking at someone else. And so I was hoping that that space would open something up in our relationship, but you're right in what you describe. The isolation was really surprising and um, I think a, a mark of what was to come in the relationship. You, you had never felt so far from not only him, but your couplehood uh, and your mm. neck hurt because, you know, it's mm. it, it's not easy <laughs> having, you know, I grew up with a, an older sister as a painter and sat for her it's not comfortable mm. to do so. No. <laughs> All right. So now, right. now this memoir is undoubtedly a work of art itself. And I, and I say that having only gotten to the chapter about ours agreeing to paint you as my book segments are usually on Thursdays. So I wasn't, I wasn't up at four <laughs> to drink it in as per usual. So for that reason, I want to invite you back for a second interview on the leaving season and make space uh, just to talk about allowing this work to evolve through a decade because not all folks go that route and make that decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I feel like that's something that I'm – a way that I might go. Uh, and I just mm-hmm. want to talk about that and, and how the leaving season came to be. I'd love that. Yeah, 10 years is a long time to work on a book and uh, and it's – it's a very different experience from, for example, my first one, although that also took about five years. So, but it's, yeah, 10 years of living it and writing it. Thoughtful. I think it's thoughtful. I think it's a, a beautiful thing in itself and quite artistic. Thank you. That means a lot. I, part of the book was to reclaim my relationship with art. So that means your comment means a lot. Well, I look forward to having you back on with us. Uh, before I let you go, Let's talk about the event tonight with Ada Calhoun at the church in Sag Harbor. Uh, what's going on there? Are you going to be reading? And when are you going to be getting going tonight? Yes. So um, we actually, because of the Rosh Hashanah holiday, um, it was moved to Sunday. Oh, God. Uh, so it's, yes. So it's Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. at the church in Sag Harbor. And it's, I'm so thrilled to be in conversation with these incredible writers. It's a memoir roundtable. So all um, three writers have memoirs out right now. Uh, Ada Calhoun, Alice Carrier, and myself. And will be moderated by another incredible writer, Jill Bialowski, who is both a fiction writer, poet, and a memoirist herself, and also my editor. So I'm, I'm just particularly excited about that. So We'll be talking a lot about uh, the art of memoir writing and art itself. 
beautiful and feels so right. Uh, I now I have an, a, a follow up, which is: Do you mind just touching on uh, your editor and the importance of such? Uh, uh, any good writer knows mm. that they are uh, a good a good editor is is worth their weight in gold. Oh, it's so necessary, and uh, Jill is just a lion in the industry. She has so she has worked with incredible writers, and I feel so privileged to um, for her to have seen promise in my work and then work with me on the manuscript. And we worked a lot. It was um, she she asked such good questions, and I, I would say the main one is you know this is primarily a divorce memoir. And she reminded me after the first draft, which I thought was finished, and she said, mm, maybe 70% there. And she said, look, every um, divorce story begins as a love story, and mm. you need to help us fall in love so we understand the heartbreak of the decisions that you later right. have to make. And she was, that was the hardest thing to go back to the page to do, but she was absolutely right. You got to have the arc in there to make it work. Mm -hmm. Uh, she made it cinematic in that way. Well, we are very yeah. excited about this Sunday at the church, 2 to 4 p.m. It's a memoir roundtable amidst Harborfest. So if you're in the village, uh, a nice consideration, especially if you love the written word. Uh, very excited uh, in advance of having you back, uh, Kelly, ahead of part two on our discussion of her memoir, the leaving season. I'm Gianna Volpe. That was Kelly McMasters. Let's see. This is Jonathan Brooke. And this was the Friday morning tea. Underwritten by Village Overhead Doors on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. News you can trust. Music you love.
grand opening going on at Glen Hansen Gallery tomorrow. Light and Water, an exhibition of landscape paintings on the boundary between abstraction and representation. 4 to 7 p.m., 1560 Young's Avenue. Tomorrow, September 16th, at Glen Hansen Gallery. Paul Creeling's got an event as well. Uh, I did want to make a note at Jeremy, the memorial for Jeremy Hamilton. Uh, the pig roast is going to be postponed until Sunday. Uh, folks can find the uh, info on Facebook. I'm Jenna Volpe, a little black sheep leading you into the NPR news break. From the OJs to the black sheep, you get a little bit of it all here on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM, the Heart Morning and Midnight Show. Featuring music from all decades and genres and interviews with folks from all walks of life, all because of you. Choices yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. 